IB teacher, IB, talk. teacher talk. IB teacher talk. You need to be reasonably intelligent. You need to work hard and show the kids that you're working hard. And you need to treat them like human beings. So Rachel, what are we looking forward to learning today from Paul Swanson? I want to discuss the effects that technology has on the classroom, and I'm also interested in his perspective on grades and if we could possibly do without them. Paul, could you give me like a 20-second recap of your life and highlight the three most significant areas? <laughs> go. 20 seconds. Go. Probably not. Um, I'm just going to go with no on that question. Um, but... I am going to tell you about what I want to talk about, because that's a good way of getting started. Um, and I think one of the questions on the list that you had there was um, what got me into teaching and into this whole thing in the first place. So I, I don't know, that seemed like a good place to start. And the memory that was coming to my mind was uh, my eighth grade social studies teacher. And I remember sitting in her classroom, uh, public school in the United States. And I remember her telling my class um, that only gay people could get HIV. Oh, man. This was 1993, okay? And I remember raising my hand in that class and saying, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's not true. Oh, my gosh. Wow, awesome. And she said, well, who do you know that's straight and has HIV? She's saying this to her eighth grade oh, student. Oh, my gosh. And I brought up the fact that they had actually invited a guy who was HIV positive, who was a hemophiliac, over to the school to talk about his experience having HIV. And she said, well, yeah, well, well, he's a hemophiliac. Like, who else do you know? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm in eighth grade. I don't know anyone <laughs> other than that who has HIV. And I, I walked away from that experience with um, a couple sort of um, takeaways, I guess you could say. Um, one of them was that she's probably crazy. And another one is that I, I'm not sure if I would be the best teacher in the world, but I'm pretty sure I could do better than that. <laughs> and so that, that, that's sort of what um, inspired me, I, I guess you could say, and to get into education was just thinking like, you don't have to be great, but if you can, I don't know, talk to kids like they're humans, and not fill their head with lies, you're actually beating the curve in a number of, a number of areas. That's fascinating because we've heard from many teachers uh, about how teachers have inspired them, but for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> <laughs> you got into teaching. How did you get into the digital side of it? Uh, a very roundabout course. Okay, so um, was interested in technology when I was really young. Like taught myself how to code when I was seven. Um, got into it and then got out of it because I wanted to be a rock star. <laughs> and music was really cool. And when I was in middle school and high school, I wanted to be cooler than I was. <laughs> And so I was like, I'm going to play bass guitar. And I played bass guitar, and I loved it. I fell in love with music, and I stopped doing tech stuff for a while. Went to college, um, got my degree in ethnomusicology. Uh, it was actually an individual major looking at 
the music of West Africa and the Black Diaspora. And then after that, um, as you do, I decided to work on a farm. And I worked on a farm for four months. As you do. As, as you do. You do. <laughs> um, it made sense at the time. Um, and then I ended up uh, deciding that I wanted to get back into education. And so I got my master's degree in social studies education. Mm. And I worked at a small school in Indiana uh, for six years. Um, it was amazing. I got to design all of my own classes and teach whatever I wanted to teach, however I wanted to teach it. So like the first class I ever taught uh, was called Ethics Through the Lens of September 11th. Whoa. Wow. That's and crazy. I was teaching about like Kantian and religious ethics to high school students um, on the fifth anniversary of 9-11. So you became that social studies teacher that inspired you. I tried. Uh, <laughs> I tried. But it was funny. Um, I, I had this idea that I was going to be the cool teacher in this uh, school, but actually I was one of the more square teachers in the school because they were all, um, I don't know, ex-hippies and were amazing teachers. And actually that's where... Uh, uh, my mentor, um, she was a former producer for the BBC, and she had gotten into social studies teaching, an amazing teacher. She mentored me. My first year there was the Great Recession in the U.S. In the 1930s. In the 1930s, that's right. <laughs> he doesn't look that old, Rachel. What I do you think? Well. I, I had I no idea. Well. <laughs> so it was 2008, and... That same year, they fired the IT guy because they thought that he wasn't doing anything and they decided not to hire anybody new. So after three years or so, all of the computers were falling apart and I volunteered to be on the tech team, uh, which was all volunteer parents and me. And so in, became the uh, tech coordinator at that school. And then three years after doing that, uh, I went to a job fair and I ended up becoming the middle school, high school tech coordinator for the United Nations School. So worked for six years as the tech coordinator for an international school and then after that came to Singapore. Um, fantastic. Can you please tell us something about you that is not on your CV or resume, <laughs> depending on what you call it? Uh, sure. So one of the things that I've loved to do for the last 20 years or so is martial arts. Um, not something on most of my CVs. Um, and I started getting into it uh, when I was in college, but then had a knee injury and got back into it um, afterwards when I was teaching and uh, did capoeira for 10 years, uh, Afro-Brazilian martial art. And then uh, when I went overseas, I was doing um, Kung Fu and Tai Chi and still practice uh, when I can today. I'm looking forward to you teaching me some moves later. Awesome. <laughs> Rachel, stick to Tai Chi rather than Capoeira, okay. seriously. I don't know the difference. I'm not capoeira is kind of interesting because it's kind of like uh, breakdancing in many respects. I'm it's basically that. battle through dance. Well, the way I describe it is if you imagine um, breakdancing as a martial art between two people to African music. Awesome. You get an idea of Capoeira. I'm down with that. Yeah, no, it's really, really cool. <laughs> so Capoeira specialist. Do you have any advice that was given to you when you first started teaching that you think is pretty awesome? For sure. So I remember when I was uh, getting my master's in education, and at the time I was 
I think like a lot of new teachers, um, I was really thinking a lot about classroom management. What happens if kids do things that I'm not ready for? I don't, you know, they just go wild, right? <laughs> Which happens. Yeah. <laughs> and what, I forget who it was who said this. I think it was someone who was a little bit older in the program said, you know, classroom management isn't really that hard. You just need to do three things. You need to be reasonably intelligent. You need to work hard and show the kids that you're working hard. And you need to treat them like human beings. Mm. And if you do those three things, kids will respect you and it'll be fine. And I, it's, I found that very true. Um, and I say that even though there have been things that have happened, like I remember there was a, a student that I had at one point who um, flipped me off through a desk and walked out of the classroom. <laughs> You're not supposed to laugh, Rachel. I'm sorry. <laughs> just, I'm just envisioning this happening. But he also came back the next day uh -huh. and apologized for losing his temper. And part of the reason he had done that was because his mom had committed suicide. Mm. And before she had died, she'd written a note blaming him for her own suicide. No. So in that context, things become fairly understandable, right? Right. And again, like treating him like a human being and trying to figure out what's going on, it came out fine. That can often be one of the most difficult parts of our work, can it yeah. not? Trying to understand what's going on behind what we see in, in the classroom. And there's so many things going on, it's difficult for us. Yeah, I think sometimes what happens is because we're the adult in the room, we, we just tend to take that authority position and we were like, ah, oh, they're kids, whatever. But we have to recognize that. We have to figure out what's going on in their lives. I want to go back to the third point you said, which was about treating the students like human beings. I think mm -hmm. that really resonates with me a lot. And I, uh, when I think of my classroom management, I think that that's really the main area of what I try to do. I try to respect them and say, listen, I'm going to treat you like adults. And I hope that you treat me and each other like adults. And let's start from there. And so far, it's going okay. <laughs> so far, so good. Well, this is where I think one of the... Piece of it, pieces of advice I would give to any teacher is if you ever consider asking a student to do something that you wouldn't want to do yourself, mm. check yourself and, and think about it again. Um, and I think about it's funny, we see this happen all the time where, you know, a student will come in two minutes late to class and the teacher will shame them in front of the rest of the class. Yeah. And you know, if I come into a meeting two minutes late and my boss shamed me for doing that, yeah. that would I would consider that to be unprofessional. Yeah. And yet... And that happens. That's happened to me. And I've also had the opposite, where I had an administrator last year when I came in late. I was stressing out about getting kids passports for, for what was it? What's it called? Service trips mm -hmm. or whatever. And the administrator came up to me and was like, are you okay? And I was like... Thank you. That's what I needed in that moment instead of, you know, being shamed. Absolutely. That's great. So just positive um, modeling, I suppose, of, of expectations. Paul, can you tell me how important you feel grades are? I've never <laughs> given a grade to a student in my life. Uh. <laughs> I taught for six years and we didn't give grades. Uh, it was either you get credit for completing the requirements of the class, 
or it doesn't show up on your transcript. Those were the two options. So it's like yes or no, pass or fail? Uh, either pass or nothing. Oh. There's no fail. Fail meant that a student didn't collect enough credits along the way, and so they may have to do another year of high school in order to get enough credits to graduate. Rachel, what do you think? Well, how does that work? I mean, if it's, if, was this the entire high school? Yep. How did they go to college, university? So the teacher I was mentioning, Sally Ann, she would walk over to the head of admissions for Indiana University and sit with her and share with her the stories of each of the students in the graduating class. We had about 15 graduates each year. It was a small school. There were 60 students, five teachers in the high school. Um, but grades um, or credits in this, I, I think that grades allow teachers to be lazy. That's my philosophy on this, and that may be controversial, but here's what I mean by it. In order to get, uh, in order to pass my classes, um, students had to achieve work at somewhere around a B or better level. If the student turned in C level work, I would sit down and keep working with that student until their work got up to the level of a B. And if they didn't get through it by the end of the semester, okay, it became a pending credit and they had the opportunity to make it up later. And there were some students who just had so many pendings that it was like, okay, let's just let those go. And it was interesting, there were some students who, um, you know, they didn't take grades all that um, seriously in grade nine and 10, and then they got to grade 11 and 12, and they started to see that their friends were about to graduate, and they weren't going to. And a lot of them realized that their choices had consequences. Yeah. What do you mean by let them go when you're like, they had to make pending credits? Well, if a student has 10 classes that they still are missing work for and would need to finish that work, but they also are taking five credit classes right now that they're trying to work and get stuff done for, at some point you have to make strategic choices about what you're just gonna let go and okay. focus on getting other things done versus trying to remember what project you had from three years ago that you still need to finish. Gotcha. I thought you were going to like boot them out the door. <laughs> no, no, no. No? <laughs> oh, I was hoping as well. Um, can I ask you, Rachel, why, what you think about... I love this idea of grades making teachers lazy. Rachel, discuss. Um, okay, so in my mind, my first response is, but I work so hard on making sure the grades are there, putting in the data. Um, but I think also that it is really hard to sit down and talk about each of your kids and to give them that personal touch, you know? Maybe grades are making us lazy, but I do work really hard. <laughs> uh, one, one question I have is if you have a student who's performing at a C and you put in as much work as you possibly can mm. to get them up to a B and they just can't, does that mean you're not wasting your time? Perhaps? So what we would actually do in those cases is we would give them a credit for what they had done and we would actually rename the class that they had taken. So uh, our English teacher, he taught a ninth grade uh, American English class. And for the students who really couldn't do that, no matter how hard they were working at it, they just couldn't put it together uh, at that point in time, he would sometimes give them a ninth grade vocabulary skills class credit. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look great on a college transcript, <laughs> 
but yeah. it shows what they were able to accomplish at that point in time. And the other op the option is nothing, so it's actually better than nothing. Yep. Maybe if they really couldn't do the American English um, course, they could do like British English. <laughs> Are you saying that it's a different gradient? We all know that the British <laughs> English course is easier. Oh, yeah. okay. okay. <laughs> Paul, could you tell me about the digital learning sphere? <laughs> um, well, let's just take that term digital learning, because I think that uh, in just that term, has a lot of misconception or, or diff maybe different conceptions about it. Um, when people talk about digital learning, a lot of times they refer to any sort of learning that uses a digital device. And that's not how I think of it or define it. Um, rather, I think of digital learning as uh, the type of learning that is possible now in the digital world that was not possible 50 years ago, for example. So it's almost synonymous with innovation, um, but it means that there are things that are wrapped up with digital learning, um, like design thinking or computational thinking, uh, that don't necessarily involve any sort of digital device. And it also means that there are digital devices that uh, just replicate the kind of learning that happened in the pre-digital world. And I wouldn't necessarily call that digital learning, it's just substituting um, the same kind of learning with a different mechanism. If I, if I was a teacher and I said to you, everything I do digitally, I can do without any kind of digital help, how could you convince me that it's important for me to understand digital learning and to use digital resources in my class within Three lines. <laughs> is Hard he, sell. Is he different than me? If so, how would you speak to him and me at the same time in different ways? Just for the record, Rachel looks really confused right now. <laughs> well, <laughs> Let me unpack that one. Let me unpack that one. Um, That's great. No matter how uh, nimble and communicative a teacher is, you can only say one thing at a time. Okay, yeah. So if you're speaking to a group of people, you have to choose how to craft that message for the group or for the individual or for the class, for the division. If you look at uh, digital learning, uh, perhaps one of the greatest breakthroughs in it is that it allows you to give different messages to different people at the mm. same time. It's kind of like differentiating your message. Mm. Absolutely. And what's even more, you, could, um, you can set up the environment in a way that allows students to find the message or the learning that resonates for them. Paul, why are teachers the worst possible students? So I'm going to have to actually disagree with this question. I don't think that teachers are the worst possible students because I think that administrators are in fact worse than teachers. The thoughts expressed on IB Teacher Talk are not the thoughts of the two hosts, Rachel and Dan. Now, I'm not talking about any specific administrators. So obviously, obviously. But the, the problem is the same, that mm. the more experienced and the more you 
are used to relying on looking competent to the people around you, the less willing you are to ask for help when you need it, the more that you assume that you know things that you don't necessarily know. And these problems happen with teachers, but they happen, I think it's the same relationship from students to teachers as it is from teachers to admin. We've had some great conversations with administrators on this podcast, and we've heard them kind of not suggesting that they do that, but saying that that's something that they have to be very mindful of. Mm. And recently an administrator said that, uh, that administrators need to be sure that they don't try and backseat drive. Was that the expression used? Backseat drive in, in teachers' classes. I think it's the question of humility is a really important one and a really challenging one. Like the more power you have in your job and in the more people you have who are looking up to you and asking you for decisions, the more you internalize that as thinking that what you have to say about things is somehow um, better, more right than what others have. And I mean, it's the same phenomenon. Like teachers love to talk and oftentimes teachers will... <laughs> That's the name of the podcast, Paul. <laughs> ...want to talk more than their students, right? Yeah. And they want to talk more than yeah. they want to listen. Yeah. And I think that one of the hallmarks of a good administrator and a good teacher is a good listener. Sorry, what was that? <laughs> and terrible. Sorry, I sorry. will be the first to say that I fall into this category. Like, I, I am not necessarily a great student, and I am not necessarily a great listener, and I am working at that. Paul, do you have a book that you'd like to recommend to us? Sure. So one book that I read uh, a few months ago that I really enjoyed was um, by Jim Knight called Better Conversations. Mm. And I went on a, a whole kick and read three or four of his books um, this last few months. And they're all really good. But Better Conversations, I think, is probably the most um, universally adaptable because we all have conversations. And we can all get better at having those conversations. And we talked earlier about the importance of listening. And I think that, yeah, that's, that's part of it. So what's the name of the book and the author one more time? Better Conversations by Jim Knight. T-O-K. T-O-K. Theory of Knowledge. Hey, Paul, how has digital learning affected the ways that we communicate? So I think not for the better in the most part. <laughs> um, it, one of the things that I, I was thinking about on this is um, the opportunities for misstep, I think, have grown. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because the feedback loop is often much, much longer and much more ambiguous. So, you know, you send someone an email and you don't, hear back from them for a few hours, you don't know, did they understand it? Did they like it? Did they get confused by it? Um, a lot of my job in the past has been, um, you know, giving advice or, you know, people asking questions related to technology. And there are times where I uh, give the obvious answer and I'm 
people think that I'm being patronizing because obviously they've tried the obvious answer and that didn't work and that's why they're asking me. <laughs> that's a good idea. Another person asked me the same question and I assume that they've tried the obvious thing and so I go to the more complex thing and they're like, well, they think I'm patronizing them <laughs> still because I'm talking over their head mm -hmm. and overcomplicating things that don't need to be overcomplicated. Mm. Um, so one of the things that I've started to do is uh, not send emails to people on anything that could potentially be controversial oh. and instead do a video call or talk to them in person because that way I can see how are they reacting to it? Is this being understood the way that I'm intending it? Am I saying this well? That adds uh, an immediacy to the communication. There's a feedback loop. Yeah. That's... And it's not just some sort of emoji that someone sends you that you're trying to figure out. Although, like, some of the um, rom-coms out there where people are, like, trying to interpret the emojis sent back and forth. Oh, my gosh. They're funny, but they're yeah. funny because they hit too close to home. Yeah. Right? Oh, my gosh. No, that's excellent. That's an excellent piece of advice for teachers, for students. I can tell you thousand times how kids have like emailed me and I'm like I wish that they just would have asked me that because it wasn't it didn't come out right <laughs> you know I want to go back to the emojis and I think the emojis are actually quite interesting because emojis add uh, an um, you can add emotion to text mm -hmm. which is something we had struggled with previously in terms of interpreting text and you're, you're alluding to it in your email discussions but what do you think about emojis in terms of a, a new level or a new layer to the communication Despite their misinformation possibilities. I don't like them because they make me feel old. <laughs> I'm just going to stick with that. Okay, Rachel can tell us about them. <laughs> That's a terrible answer to anything. I don't like it. It makes me feel old. Get it out of here. Podcasts make me feel old. Get it out of here. Um, there, there's this whole thing of it now about, um, I don't know if it's emoji. There's another name for it. I forget what it is. But basically, people are writing in their text, like, how should you inter interpret the statement that I just made. Oh. Like, is this literal? Is this figurative? Like, they'll, they'll tell you how to interpret the text. And the idea, in theory, is that it's more inclusive because some people have a great deal of trouble right. um, understanding the connotation and the tone, mm -hmm. especially in writing like that. Yeah. Um, but there's also just this kind of weirdness to it as well that kind of takes the fun out of it, doesn't it? Yeah, I kind of like being sassy and snappy with my language on text, but I can see how it would go over poorly. Paul, thanks so much for joining us today. We've had a wonderful time. We appreciate how you told us how badly we communicate. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Okay, Rachel, that was another fun episode. What do you think our major takeaways are from today's um, discussion with Paul Swanson? 
I'm really happy that we discussed how communication has been good and bad for us in this digital age um, and for our students and how we use that in the classroom. I like how we talked about um, if he's got something important to talk about, he'll do a video call or speak to somebody face to face rather than email them. Yes, I think that's a very good thing to think about when we are writing emails. I'm also happy we discussed uh, treating students like humans and being respectful um, and making sure we're just following the golden rule, but also taking time to hear their stories. Yeah, I really like that. And finally, can I add in that I thought it was great to hear that if we take away grades, it makes it more work, but more rich for our students. Yeah, that was a tough one to work out, but I really love the idea of having a school where there are no grades. So grades equate lazy teachers. Yeah, grades make us lazy. <laughs> Rachel, you're lazy. I'm not, I work so hard. <laughs> I know. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs>